We have been on a journey through this book, and admittedly, we've taken the scenic route. Um, But we're getting close to winding it down. And we find ourselves in a spot in Acts where, uh, I don't know, anybody, I know that uh, Ted uh, saved an entire baptism uh, from a snake, uh, recently ran in like the crocodile hunter and pulled out the snake. At, at our golf tournament, Tim showed up with a bull snake about the size of a, it was huge. And, you know, wowed the kids. I'm just not a big snake guy. Uh, not anti-snake necessarily, but also not pro-snake. Um, as evidence, when I was out doing a little cycling, I was out in Leaper's Fork. I was one of those guys that you're like, man, could that guy get over the side of the road? The biker, we're going to run him over. And it's like early morning and I'm, there's a snake that I'm coming up on and it's just laying on the side of the road and it looks dead. And so I'm going to drive close to it and it's like morning, right? What, you know? And so I get like right up on the snake and it goes and jumps up and scared me. I scared the snake. Didn't wreck, but only because apparently God was having mercy on me that morning. It was certainly not because of, and I'm mad my heart was racing. So imagine Paul's surprise. In Acts 28, the guy just got out of being shipwrecked. In chapter 28, verse 1, it says, Once they were safely on shore, I mean, he'd been at like sea for like months, and it was a sea, it was, it was storming, and, and he's finally, the, the thing shipwrecks, and he's got prune hands, he's washed into shore, and they, they set up a fire, and, and this is where we pick up in verse 1. It says, Once they were safely on shore, we found out that the island was called Malta, which uh, in those days was Mylita. Today it is Malta. The islanders showed us unusual kindness. They built us a fire and welcomed us all because they heard that we were going to be on an episode of Lost. No, that was, it was raining and cold. And Paul gathered a pile of brushwood and as he put it on the fire, a viper driven out from the heat fastened itself on his hand. I would have, I might have cried. Certainly there would have been a squeal like a woman. You know what I mean? Like there would have been that moment of, oh, please, God, nobody have that on on video. And it was hanging onto his hand. And it says, uh, verse 4, when the islanders saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to each other, this man must be a murderer. Uh, For though he escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. But Paul shook the snake off into the fire and suffered no ill effects. The people, verse 6, expected him to swell up or suddenly fall dead or cry like a little girl. But after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and said that, that he was a god. Uh, would you pray with me this morning? Uh, Lord, as we uh, approach your word, this isn't just an academic exercise. It's a spiritual uh, journey for us. And I am uh, well aware that uh, your promise is true, that it is a word for us, that it could be our alive word inside of us, that it's a lamp for our feet, a light for our paths. And I just ask that you would do all of those things for us, the, the need that we specifically came in with, the, the hurt, the broken peace, the whatever it is that you would speak to that this morning. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Acts 28. Yeah, we're trying to make sure we serve everybody. This is the snake book, uh, this chapter that kind of freaks me out, and the chapter that, that some people take a little too far. Um, there are churches in our vicinity that would read this passage and say, hey, we should actually bring a snake to church. 
And if you don't believe me, Bucky, uh, would you roll that beautiful snake footage? This is Jola, a hard place to find. Winding mountain roads are the only way in. Visitors are rare, but for those who do come, it's an unforgettable experience. <laughs> Faithful gather for Sunday service. It's filled with loud music, lots of dancing. You might expect that. What might surprise you are the copperheads and rappers. They are part of the Pentecostal church, but the faithfuls here know the world outside may not understand, may not approve, may even hold them up for ridicule. That when you take that servant, it comforts you, and he can't back. He can only do what God wants. Whatever people may think, there is no denying this is high-energy religion. Snakes pass from hand to hand, elders speak in new tongues, and the dancing doesn't stop. The celebration of their belief in God is compelling to watch. But for the followers, there is a price to pay. Swigs of strychnine and poisonous snake bites can be deadly. Have you lost congregation members to snake bites? lost a sister in 62. And then we lost one last December, this past December, a year ago. Chapter 16 in the book of Mark calls for God's followers to handle serpents and drink poisons. Some see it as the ultimate proof of their faith. For those unfamiliar, all this may be too bizarre, but as the Church of the Lord Jesus in Jolo, it has been this way for some 40 years. Like coal mining, religion here is passed on from one generation to the next. For these people, it's a way of life that's timeless, as timeless as the Appalachian Mountains they call home. That happens, um, <laughs> and it's going on now. The thing uh, is that sometimes we can look to the scriptures, and we can maybe uh, misunderstand them. Because when I see a passage like this, I don't see an excuse to invite snakes to church, and all of God's people said, Amen. <laughs> this snake was about to kill a church that was being born. Okay, this was not something that Paul wanted to handle and dance around with. It was like this was in the fire coming out, the enemy approaching this, the, the idea that it could kill this church before it was ever even born. Paul was about to uh, preach the gospel. And of course, what the Lord he did, what he always does, he takes something that the enemy meant for evil and then turns it around and uses it for good. And, and when they saw no ill effects on him, they realized, wow, there's something to this thing. And a church was born uh, on Malta. As I was reading this over the past few weeks, it, was, it sort of came into my heart that as a young church especially, and we're young, we're like a year and some change old. I guess we're getting closer to two now. And when you're two, if you've been around a two-year-old, you know that we can walk, but we're still, you know, and some of us may be still in diapers, a church. So in other words, it's going to be a little messy sometimes at this church because we're young. We're going to stumble. We're going to trip. We're going to fall. We're going to, but what we can't do is allow the enemy to in, bring snakes into our, our midst to uh, poison, to constrict, to kill us uh, when we're young. 
when we were in uh, Togo, Africa last summer, uh, I don't know if David just seemed to take this like old hat, but when we were walking through some of those paths, uh, the guy would always have a club with him. And I asked him, what's the club for? And it's for the black mambas and brown mambas and halfway in between mambas and the, the ones that like kill you and you die a lot. Um, and, and that's why he had the club. But there are all these little kids that would walk through these paths and uh, with these snakes everywhere. And, and I would say that it's, it's, it's uh, reminiscent of the world that we live in that snakes would try to get in into our midst. And when I look to scripture, I see that Paul would, of course, looked at that and thought, well, of course it's a snake, a fiery snake. That's what what happened in the book of Numbers. It's actually what happened in Numbers 21, and we'll go there in in a little bit, when the people of Israel were murmuring and complaining and and snakes began to bite them and they were dying. and, and And Moses instructed him to do something very, very, very strange. When he said to create a brass serpent and to put it on a pole, and that word pole there was, it was either have been like a large staff or it could have been a, a ship, uh, the mast of a ship, which would have been shaped like a cross. And he said to put it up on this hill and to hold it up and that if the people of Israel would look to that brass serpent, that they would be healed. Now that's kind of weird, except for that there's a picture of it and we don't have time this morning to go into it, but feel free to go and study it out on your own. It's an amazing picture of what the Lord did because what happened, Paul would say later that Jesus himself was that. And then Jesus would then say, and I think it's in John that he would use this picture and say, that's what's about to happen to me, that I would become sin, your sin. And that if you would just look on me, Isaiah 44 would say to look to him, to believe to him and you'll be saved. And he became sin for us. Because the, the, the covenant, the law, the rules and the things, and we couldn't do it. And so when we would be sick like those Israelites, that picture of them, that if we would look to the serpent, Jesus on the cross, that we would believe. He who became no sin, Paul said. Who, he who knew no sin, Paul said, became sin, that we might have righteousness. That was the picture. And it was a beautiful picture because if you think back to the garden, who was it that approached Eve? It was a, a serpent. And ironically, uh, bad news for Jesus, uh, for uh, bad news for Satan, uh, that moment when the garden, when it was over, the Lord would say to, uh, to them that day that her seed would crush your head, speaking to the serpent in a picture again of that. It's, of course, it would be a serpent. And whenever you see that in scripture, it speaks of, uh, of evil, of sin, of the enemy. And, and if, you've, you know, if you're not very pro-snake, you're like, absolutely, that's what it speaks of. Every time I see one, I think evil things towards the snake. But when I look in Scripture, I saw, and maybe you'll see more. Maybe you'll, something will prompt that there will be another moment. But I've, I found four things in the Scripture, pictures of, what, of a snake that could kill an early church, a young church. And when I say a church, I'm not speaking of an organization. It's us. We're the church. And so when I'm speaking of us as a church, I'm saying when we are getting together, when a group of people get together, there's four things in Scripture, four pictures that I think through the Old and the New Covenant that speak to us that we could really be cautious about. Because snakes, they're a little sneaky. When I was in Bible college, I was asked to uh, snake sit uh, for a buddy of mine. A boa something constrictor. And, uh, and of course, he got out. 
which was unfortunate. And it was weeks later in my closet, like up in the back corner. I, I, I have no idea how he did it. But I can tell you what happened when he poked his head out and looked down. And I uh, may or may not have screamed like a little girl. Now, that snake would later disappear into his mama's car. This is Trudy Laidlaw, Bonnie. You know her. And she's driving this little Chevy Citation down the road. The snake had disappeared. They had no idea where the snake was. Until it came out from under the seat and into the driver's area. And Trudy almost wrecked. And uh, I'm sure she did cry uh, like a little girl. Snakes are sneaky. It's like, I don't know how it happens, how they get there. Uh, Maddie had a little pet snake a long time ago that we have never seen again. No idea. He, for all I know, could be living large on rabbits in the neighborhood. He could still be in the attic, for all I know. At some point, years later, I, I still wonder if he's going to come popping out someday and say, Hello. <laughs> but when I look to the scriptures, I can find examples of what those snakes and how they could sneak into us as believers. And even if you're not a part of our fellowship, a part of our little body that we call conduit, this is something for you in your own lives where these serpents can get in and, and, and latch onto you. The, the first one is actually in Numbers 21 that we just talked about. It was in Numbers 21 verse 4 that they traveled from Mount Hor along to the route to the sea and around to Edom. But the people grew patient on the way. And listen to this in verse 5. And they spoke against God and against Moses. They would go on to murmur and complain. And it's interesting because they were almost out of the wilderness. They were 40 years in. God had been making it rain sandwiches. Okay? Manna. And just, I mean, a chapter earlier was when they were mad at him again. And it was the the infamous uh, story of Moses striking the rock and water came out. And here they are again. And what it's interesting they said was that uh, we don't have food or water. uh, Verse, verse, uh, let's go to the last part of verse 5 there. Uh, Why have you brought us, this is what they're saying to Moses, out of Egypt to die in the wilderness. There's no bread, there's no water, and we detest this miserable food. It wasn't that they didn't have food. They just didn't like what they had. And, and, okay, in fairness to them, eventually it gets a little old. You can eat the same food day after day, and it gets a little old, but you have food. And I feel like what the Lord was painting a picture for them was, if you can't be content here with me making it rain sandwiches, you're not going to be content anywhere. And this picture was unfolded for us to see that they're about to enter this promised land to to learn how to be, what Paul would say, content. And the truth is, is this. I cannot be content. Not on my own. Paul says that he said, I could be content in Philippians, whether I had much or I have little, I've learned the secret of being content. And what was the secret? That I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's how I can be content. And so in a small church like this, man, there is plenty to not be content about. Plenty of things to be mad about. Plenty of things because I'll genuinely, I'll drop the ball. Newsflash, I probably will do it today. Your friends around you, your uh, people that you're serving with in children's ministry or the worship, will let each other down. 
And we have a decision at that point of what to do about it. And I think that the picture of a lot of snakes is such a perfect one. Because that's kind of what ends up happening. Is I'm biting you and you're biting that thing. And it just it, this poison starts to spread. And most times it's because, well, we're talking to each other and not talking to the person that we have a problem with. Jesus gave us such a simple solution. We always muddy it up. Don't we always muddy it up? Oh, uh, this and that and the other. He just said, go to them. Matthew 18. Talk to them. And 99% of the time, you figure it out. Was it the, the words of the great prophet Ronald Reagan when he said, we, we, do, we are better when we, uh, we get more accomplished when we talk to each other instead of about each other. And sometimes we have this idea that I can say it about somebody and if it's true, then it's okay. And the picture of the snake. And I think the reason of that is because that, yeah, I got sin in my life. And you can say all kinds of things about me that would be true. And sometimes you can say things that aren't. And if you need help, I can actually, I can give you the list. There's true things you can say about me that are not, you know, that I've messed up or where I'm failing. And, and about each other as well. But here's the point. It's not true because Jesus looks at you and I and sees this as righteous. And so that brother or that sister, that coworker that you're mad at and tearing down behind their back and saying, and it's true, because he really is that way. There was a little boy at school, and Ethan, he said, uh, he came home, I'm not going to say his name. Uh, he said, yeah, so-and-so is just really dumb. And I was like, Ethan, we don't say that about, and he's like, no, 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 he really is. <laughs> because it was true, that made it better, right? He was genuinely like... And what he was trying to say was, this kid really is mean. And I can say, you can say things that really are true, but Jesus would look at me and say that, no, you're righteous. And so when I am calling you something that Jesus isn't calling you, I am lying, not you. If you're a husband this morning, you know that there aren't many things that can get your blood boiling more than someone talking about your wife in a negative connotation. One of the most uh, infuriating conversations I can remember with a former spiritual person in my life was when he made the comment about, well, you know how your wife is. Um, it went poorly. But, but if I'm the bride of Christ, if you're the bride of Christ, if that's the picture that he chooses of us, whew, it's, just not, it's not a place you want to be in. Just allow Jesus... And ultimately allow Jesus to do what Jesus does, which is to take care of that. When I'm really tearing somebody down like that, what I'm really saying is that I'll take care of this one, God. I'm saying I don't, I've got plenty of faith in me to take care of this. I don't need your help as opposed to, A, just following a natural step that the Lord would say to do, to go to that person and, and, and to take care of it that way. Instead of, you know, and I, I've heard this said from somebody, but if we prayed about people as much as we talk about them, Imagine what our lives could be better. So the snake of murmuring, the snake of complaining and backbiting is one that can not only kill a church, but it kills us inside. And, and those things sneak in on us. And I would encourage you, like Paul, to shake it off. The snake that I see next is in Genesis chapter 3. And it's a snake that we would call legalism. Chapter 3, the, this, obviously the entire chapter talks about the, this, in the garden where Eve, and, and it would say that the certain, 
uh, the serpent on verse 2 of chapter 3 said, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat. This is after the serpent says, hey, God uh, doesn't want you to be smart like he is. He's holding out on you. And so Eve responds by saying this, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. And you must not touch it or you'll die. The problem with that is that is not what God said. God said, don't eat from the fruit. And so she added, don't touch it, and legalism was born. The idea that there's this thing that can happen if I do this, and so I'm going to build an extra parameter, an extra fence, and when I do that, then I'll be more safe. And then another one comes in, another rule, another regulation, another thing. And really... I mean, how's it working out for us? I've been to Bible college not very well. I mean, think about it in these terms. He told Eve, don't even eat the fruit. But guess where she was when she was thinking about not touching it? She was actually at the tree. Kind of made her curious. Look, it's, it's, the, it's the weirdest thing. And you know what you've experienced. But the more rules we put on ourselves like that, the harder it is because we're more curious. We're more apt to rebel into. And it's why we've talked about with our kids and with ourselves that more so than teaching us what we should and shouldn't be doing, we need to know who we are in Christ. And as we know who that is, we are making much different choices. Because what Eve didn't say was, oh, no, but he, I'm a daughter of, the, of God. I am righteous and true and he's you know she didn't apparently know or had chosen to doubt who she was and she focused more on what she shouldn't be doing than on who she was and when that happens it always gets us in trouble and we've got all kinds of ways that legalism can sneak into a church what i would define legalism as is when we see something in scripture and then we add to it for benefit for safety and sometimes by the way it isn't like it's a bad thing Like, don't touch it. That makes sense. But when it's a rule that I've put in place, and then I enforce it on everybody else, all of a sudden, it's a legal thing. I have a contract with my wife for our marriage. I do not live as her husband to try to fulfill an agreement, to try to look at the deal and say, okay, I can and can't do this, can and can't do that, can and can't check, 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 I did this, do that. If, 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 you know, if, if uh, you go to the, uh, the courthouse, I think in Oklahoma, there'll be a little uh, thing on file that we're legally married, that there's a contractual thing there. And some of you have been there, and maybe some of you are there today, and man, I know that I love you and I'm praying for you. But if, if you're in that situation in your own marriage, you know how miserable that can be. That the only reason I'm here is because I got a piece of paper and I'm trying to fulfill this thing, this paperwork. I'm not married to the contract, to the law. I'm married to Jehovah, to Jesus, to the, the, the guy that's coming back for me. And I'm living according to that. And when I'm living out of that, I make a lot of different decisions. I have freedom, Paul says, to do whatever I want to do. Not everything is profitable, he says. So teaching who I am, I'll be able to say, okay, well, this is not profitable that I do it this way. And there's so much, and I'm going to say this and, and know that, look, if you disagree with me, you absolutely have the right to be wrong, but you can be, no, I'm just kidding. You have the right to, to think this, but one of the things that I'm going to say this, because it's a really common one is in the, in the area of alcohol in our world. There are those that would say you mustn't drink wine or drink alcohol. And 
because God said don't be drunk and so you shouldn't even do it. Now, here's the thing. God will lead some people to do that. That's a true thing. And, And some people have battled with it in an addiction. And it's not good for them to do that. But when we say don't drink ever at all, period, what we've done is put a law in place of what Jesus said. We've added a layer to it. He said don't be drunk with wine. And we say, well, if I don't even drink it, well, then I can't ever get drunk. True. And again, how's that working out for you? And I think as parents, it's important for us to think through these things because a lot of times when our kids are getting older and the things they're struggling with is because they're going to go to the Bible and look out and figure out what the word says on their own. And when it doesn't match up with mom and dad, what we said, it causes some confusion. It's up. This is between you and the Lord. You pray about it. You seek it out. But I tend to just, whatever the Lord says, let's do it and let the Holy Spirit be the Holy Spirit in our kids and teach them, teach each other these things and then let the Holy Spirit lead us and not allow uh, legalism to get in. It can get in, you think, okay, well, that's a big one. What about another one? Membership, in my mind, is a form, can be a form of legalism. It's not a sin to have church membership. It's just not in the Bible. You can comb this thing through and every, uh, even the message Bible doesn't include membership. It's just not in there. And it's not a sin. It's just that now we've added this. And then here's what happens. Now we got membership. And in Kentucky last week, kid you not, a church voted out a member because it was an interracial relationship. I mean, Seriously. No, the vote was 17 to 4 because that was about all the members they could get to vote. I mean, there's only like 40 members total. But when we start putting membership in place, there's that opportunity now that I've got extra parameters. I was uh, on a retreat last year with a pastor, and he was talking about the members in his church. And there was a a member, or no, a lady who wanted to be a member, and she owned an eatery in town here. And so she said, he was saying... Uh, but she, she's gotten saved. She loves the Lord. And uh, she's just so excited. But she lives with her boyfriend. Can we? Uh, he was struggling with whether or not to let her be a member or not. And my question was, do I have a higher uh, uh, entrance price for being a member of my church than Jesus does for having to be a member of his body? And when I start having to ask those questions of myself, that's not a... Can I be a member or not question? That's a question of who are you in Christ? And and would you, uh, as a Christian, would you do that? As a Christ follower, would you do that? And I just, I feel like there's a reason why. And and look, and I say this about a church because you could get, the snakes can sneak in and I've got them all around. And and I'm not, you're none of you are snakes. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that in my mind, these, well, I can see why you want to do membership because how do I know who's even in our church? People, how many people go to your church? I have no idea. I mean, I can tell you how many people attend or whatever, but, and then there's the practical side of, well, when somebody leaves, you know, how do I know? Well, I know because they, they defriend me on Facebook, but if they, <laughs> but, <laughs> it's the modern way to leave a church. I'm like, I guess I'm not friends anymore. Um, but you have the freedom to go and come when you want to. And my tendency, of course, is I want to legalize this thing and put it in so I can have a contract and I can know. And then I know, and then there's this thing and paperwork, and I have to put the sword and W and whatever the thing is to make you a member. And then if you want to leave, then you got to go you know, do paperwork. or I mean, seriously. It's not a sin. It's just we just added something to it. It's legalism. And I hope you'll join me in saying we don't want legalistic snakes in here. The next thing that I see 
is in the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 12. Jesus was talking to Pharisees. Of which, ironically, Paul would have been one of. Paul would have been one of the, uh, most likely one of the Sanhedrin, which was like their supreme court. And they're doing what they always do, which is question him and about the law and what about this master. And, and he, he just blurts out, man, verse 33, you make a good tree and its fruit will be good. Make a bad tree, its fruit will be bad, for a tree is recognized by its fruit. And he goes on to say, you brood of vipers. That is basically calling you a bunch of babies, snakes. How can you who are evil say anything good? He's talking to this group of religious people. Now, there's a difference between religion and legalism. I would say the most easy way to think of it is legalism is about what you are uh, not doing, the abstaining from, those legalistic things. And then the religion piece is what you are doing. Religion says, if I pray enough, then God will bless me. Religion says, if I read my Bible enough, then I'll be spiritual. Religion will bind you up into all this work and saying that Jesus said, it is finished, except I got a couple more things on the list. Jesus didn't attach a writer to the end of it is finished of all the extra things that we have to do to get close to God. If you are wondering whether or not you struggle with religion in your heart, and I think all of us do, if if you're raised around the church, you do, I promise you that. Answer this question in your head. I tithe because I read my Bible every day because... And if any of those words are so that I can get more of God or that God can be nice to me and bless me, then I've just added to the covenant. I've said that Jesus uh, went and did away with the old covenant just to give me a new one, a new contract, and that isn't what he did. He said the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, we talked about it last week, was that I will write my will on your hearts and on your minds. You will know me. And there isn't a, and then if you do these things, then you will get this. It is, that is it. I am dying in your place. You are now righteous because I am righteous, clothed in my righteousness, period. The last time that you blew it big time, how long was it before you went to the Lord? How long was it before you thought, okay, I'm okay to pray now? Because I'm running around with my own righteousness, trying to make it on that. And man, it's A, it doesn't work. And B, it's miserable. And you might say, well, Darren, that's great, but there are things we, you know, we should do. Absolutely. You should read your Bible, but not because you should get, you can be blessed and get all these things. Because it's out of your heart. You're realizing what he's done for you. And I want to know more about him. And when I'm approaching the scriptures, it's with prayer and saying, God, show me you today. Uh, not a race to get through the Bible. I, I love the, uh, I love and hate the year r- programs of reading the Bible. I love them because I think it gets people in the word. I hate them because then all of a sudden you're in a race. And I got to get through, what is it, February when you hit Leviticus. You're like, oh. And then you get to the genealogies. You think that's a freebie. <laughs> i just going to skip over those. But what if the Lord wants to talk to you today about something that you just read and you need to camp out there a while? But you can't because you've got to get to the end of the day. 
because you got to keep up with it. And then about June, when you're like three months behind and you've blown it, then there's that bondage and the failure thing. And, and some of you made it, and hey, congratulations. Great for you. All three of you that made it through. You're awesome. But you can't stand there with that righteousness and say, I've done something for the Lord that now he loves me more. He loves you, period. Because you looked on him, because you believed in him. And then there's a sanctification thing that happens in us. And I begin to not do certain things, not because I'm trying to make him love me more, but because that's just not very smart. And the, and the spirit will lead me in that way saying, yeah, I shouldn't do that because that's harmful to my body. That's harmful to the relationships around me. The reason God hates sin is not because he's some cosmic buzzkill. He just knows what it does to us. That it breaks you down. It chips you away. We talked about it last week. If I told one of your kids to go lick the outlet, they wouldn't do that. At least not if they're like more than two or three. Because they know that's not good. And when the Lord says, hey, don't go lick the outlet, it isn't because he's mad or trying to love you more or less. He just, it's because he loves you. Don't, don't do that. That's going to hurt a lot. It's going to give you a brand new hairstyle that you didn't want. Don't do that. Jesus has a covenant that he is mediating, the book of Hebrews tells us. And if I'm trying to get him to mediate a contract, a covenant that isn't his, he's not interested. He's saying, I, this is the one, Jeremiah 31, that is the one I am mediating. If you want to go get a new one, I'll be back over here ready to mediate the one that I have done for you, which is you are righteous and you are a brand new creature in Christ. The last snake, and we're getting ready to circle this thing in, is honestly for me the most uncomfortable one, which is false religion. Not only legalism, not only re, you know, like religion, murmuring, but false religion. And in second... We don't, you don't have to turn there. But in Exodus 7, we, we saw that maybe a little bit last week too. When Moses with, the, uh, with Aaron, and he threw down the, the, the rod, and it became a big snake. And then the other magicians threw down their rods, and they became snakes, right? And what did Moses, or Aaron's uh, snake ate the other little snakes? And it was a picture of, of course, Jesus becoming sin and absorbing our sin. But when, when uh, Paul would write his letter to Timothy, the last thing he ever wrote... It's almost the end of his life now. It's chapter 3 of 2 Timothy in verse 1. It says, This know also that in these last days perilous times will come. And in verse 2, Men shall be lovers of their own selves and covetous and boasters and proud blasphemers, disobedient to parents. And it goes on to say many things that we experience in our society right now. But it says this in verse 4. That they would be lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. They would have a form of godliness, but deny the power thereof. And from these you should turn away. And then he would go down in verse 8 and say that just as Janus and Jambres, which were the names of those magicians, withstood Moses, so do these also men resist the truth. And they're resisting it. Corrupt minds, reprobate concerning the faith. They're resisting it because... The false religion in their heart. And in our society, we could approach many things that I think are a false religion. But I think the one, the snake, if you will, that pertains to us the most in a church environment is the false religion of consumerism. The altar that we worship at. And you might think, hey, Darren, that's a little extreme. Last month, CNN wrote an article... They were, it was a BBC uh, uh, documentary showing how that Mac users 
that when they're getting so excited about their new Macintosh computers and all, that it triggers the exact same thing in your brain that a deity does. Like when they do the brain scan and when someone is, you know, worshiping the Lord or whatever moment, like I'm probably listening to Chris Tomlin, I don't know what they did, but something very holy. And when they're doing that in the brain scan, that whatever that part of their brain that fires off when they're doing that is the exact same part of the brain that fires off when you're going to get your new iPhone. Now, hear me crystal clear. I have an iPhone. I'm not saying it's a sin. What I'm saying is there is a consumerist religion that we could buy into that then allows us as a church to say, I have to give people what they want so that I can get them in the door and, quote, reach them. And consumers, I mean, how many of you bought a pair of Crocs this year? Joe, you don't count. Remember when they were everywhere? Consumers are done with that now. They move on. And if I'm getting somebody in with a padded chair and a cup holder, nothing wrong with those things. But if it's why I'm doing it is to get somebody in there, I haven't made a disciple. I've just made a consumer. Jesus did not say to go into all the world and make consumers. Consumers will change your mind. Man, there are some things that I used to love. There are foods that I loved that I just, you know, that's last year. There is music, okay, that I have records hanging on my wall that my kids have never heard of. Because that was 10 years ago. They're done. And they're all those musicians are like me right now going, well, that was awesome. Well, it lasted. As a church, we can't let that thing sink its fangs into us. Because here's, guys, here's the thing. When I mix commerce and the gospel, it's a poisonous mix. And when I am selling something, the tr- problem is this truth is not always very commercially viable. And so if I have to package it so that a seeker can find me, Jesus, uh, Jesus said, uh, Paul said, there are none who seek me. I, I mean, I, I, you know, who am I going for if, if there are none who seek me? We're not looking to be a seeker or anything. We're looking to be a Jesus church. And Jesus said, if you lift me up, which, by the way, speaking of the manner in which he would die, it says in John. So the next time you're singing, lift Jesus higher, that's what he was talking about. But if you lift that up, that I will draw all men unto me. And so for us to allow ourselves to get sucked into that just for the idea uh, that I could get somebody's false religion, which is what it is, I'm not putting forth the gospel. The gospel is in and of itself enough. If, if there are, I have great friends who are pastors of churches that have padded chairs. I'm not Holy Ghost Junior. He doesn't need my help. We'll leave the Lord to decide that. But what I'm saying is conduit, what we're called to be, is not about these chairs are uncomfortable because I don't want you here very long. We have a world around us that needs Jesus. And if my idea is to get this and build this thing so you, we can get people here to find Jesus, that is the exact antithesis of what he designed. He designed all of us to be disciples. Have you been around a Mac person? They're intolerable. And then I get one. I'm like, oh, you've got to see this app. It's awesome. That's what Jesus is looking for, for us to be able to say, this is awesome. And all of us become disciples and all of us are doing that. And that's why we have to let that snake die 
Because it was never about what I could get out of it. It was about what Jesus would do through me. And then the beauty of that is he would do these amazing things in me. As we, um, as we worship just a little bit more, I would ask you this morning to look in our own hearts what snakes are sneaking in here. Paul said, uh, Paul didn't say anything. He shook it off. And that's what we got to do. I was going to show a video, but it just doesn't feel appropriate right now. But go home and Google Mike Rowe bit by snake. The guy from Dirty Jobs and the snake just latches on and it won't fall. And what was interesting was the way he got it to let go was he let go. The more he held onto that thing's neck, the more it sunk its fangs in. And the more he whined and moaned because it hurts. Was trying to wrap around him. Paul had to at one point just reach his arm out and shake it off. And as we worship this morning, my challenge to you is to shake it off. Legalism, religion, false religion, murmuring and complaining. Let's just shake them off and let the Lord. When Maddie was a little girl, I, she, uh, she got into snakes for a little bit. And there was a part of me as a father that said, hey, this is cool. Because if she likes snakes, boys will be totally creeped out by that and they won't want to be around her. Right? That's a bad idea. Because here's what was the problem with that theory. Was most boys would be creeped out by that. Alice Cooper's grandson would be into that. Right? So when we allow snakes into our deal, the question in our lives is who are we attracting to us? Do we want to be surrounded by a bunch of legalistic people? No, we want to be free and allow the Lord to set them free. We want to be around a bunch of religious people? No. We want to be free, the freedom that Christ gave us. Does anybody like to be around complaining and murmuring? And those that do, man, you don't want to be anywhere near them. want the Lord to set them free, but you don't want them bringing the poison into you. So if we are allowing the snakes in, the question isn't just the damage that it could do to us personally. It, what does it attract? Who are we attracting in? So let's, as a body of believers, we're going into a brand new year. We're going to land uh, the book of Acts the first week of January and go into a brand new thing that the Lord is doing. But as we do that, so that we can do that, let's just shake off any snake that would attach itself to you and look to Jesus. Point ourselves to Jesus. Lord, we are, um, I am sorry for every time I let some, invite some snake to church and legalism or religion or whatever thing that I've brought into this thing, I just ask that you'd show it to me and I can shake it off. That if there's a snake of murmuring and bitterness and anger, that Lord, that you, we'd look to the serpent, you on the cross and you becoming sin and just be, know that we were righteous because of that. And I don't have to look to the, my friends and the angry and the hurt that I have there. I can look to you and say that you, the same sin that you absorbed of mine is the sin that you absorbed of theirs. And I have trust and faith that you'll take care of that. In a church like ours, if you'd look at me, one of the religion things I think that we can get into, Jesus, James would say the true religion is what? Caring for orphans and widows. And of course, we aspire to that and we strive for that. But understand that even in that, Paul said, we could be weary and well-doing. There's a lot going on in our church at any given time. And hear me say, as, as a pastor, you have freedom. If you can't make it to a fundraiser, so what? There's a guy, uh, 
well, Jim, I don't think you'll mind me telling you. His son's birthday was on Friday, and he's like, Darren, I feel really bad. I feel like I should be there because what will people think? They'll think you're home with your son celebrating his birthday. That's awesome. Freedom says we get to do that. Freedom is is that if, oh, I feel like I've got to go to Haiti because everybody's going to Haiti. Uh Uh-uh. Freedom says, what is the Spirit leading me to do? Freedom says, there's a lot of people, uh, we were talking the other day, there's a lot of people in our church doing a lot of things. A lot of money is needed. I know. Just do what the Spirit leads you to do. And don't feel any guilt or if you can't help this person or that. What is the Spirit leading you to do? And anything else that's out of fear, what they'll think, uh, opposite of fear is faith, right? We want faith and say, cast out all that fear, shake it off. That's religion trying to snatch itself onto your hand. Reject it. God, we give the the burden to you to know that we... uh, We don't got to do anything. We get to do these things. We get to birth churches. We get to go to Haiti. We get to give. We get to do things that you have called us to do. And anything that falls under the category of God, we just throw it out. And it's in your name that we pray. It's in the nature of who you are, Jesus. Amen.